If you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And definitely a chapter worth knowing by heart. Exodus 20, of course, is the Ten Commandments. Last time I spoke, we were in the book of 1 Timothy in the morning, and we noted there how Paul mentions to that church Uh, really through Timothy, that the law is good if it is used lawfully. And we looked at what are those, some of those lawful or those healthier good uses of the law. And one of the most important, healthiest uses of the law is to use it um, to edify people who are Christians, to give guidance and direction to our lives. And, And Jesus did this. His most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is an exposition of the Ten Commandments in large part. We also saw that in 1 Timothy, the Ten Commandments are repeated and cited, and you can find them in many others of Paul's letters and in New Testament books. So the Ten Commandments very much provide a foundational pillar for our understanding of what it looks like to live the Christian life. In our confessional standards and in many uh, reform standards from the time of the Reformation, it's the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments that are often put together and exposited as sort of the basics of the Christian life. So years ago, many years ago, when I did a series on the Ten Commandments, I made a promise to this congregation that I would return again and again to the Ten Commandments on occasion. And I want to keep that promise tonight by returning to the Tenth Commandment. But for context, I'll read all of uh, the commandments together. I'll ask you to stand as we read God's Word and this uh, God's holy moral law. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that your Lord, the Lord your God, is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. 
Father, we give you thanks tonight, first and foremost, that the Lord Jesus Christ in his life kept each of these commandments perfectly, spotlessly for us. And so we stand in his righteousness and look to him alone for our salvation. And yet we are also grateful as Christians that this law still speaks to our hearts and lives. It condemns our sinful behavior and it brings us into your presence. And we pray, Father, that would be its effect tonight as we consider the 10th commandment, that we would look into our own hearts and see there what is truly there, the sin that is hiding there, and that by your Holy Spirit, it would be forced into the open, and by your Holy Spirit, would it be put to death. Work in us now, we pray, to bring this about, that Christ might be glorified in all things, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Over the last couple of lessons in First Timothy, I've been emphasizing the law's uh, critical role, critical role in defining what love really is. I think that's something so important right now. I don't think I have to explain why in our culture and in this moment you need to master this. Uh, The law plays a critical role in defining what love is. Love must mean something. There must be some actions and feelings that are loving and some that are not. Otherwise, love is really just another term, and I think this is the case in our culture, another term for desire, whether good or bad. If that is what love is, if it's just desire, then we cannot extol or celebrate love. After all, love could be any desire, even the most horrific obsession. In response to all this, the law comes to train us in love, to define it, and to make us practitioners of it. To put it simply, the law lassos this wild term, love, and makes something useful, tangible, and real. I think the very same kinds of things can be said about the word freedom. People in our society talk about freedom like they talk about love with very little thought or depth. Usually in our world, freedom just means the ability to do whatever you wanted regardless of how destructive, promiscuous, or wicked. For time's sake, we won't get a closer look at these problems. Rather, I simply want to make a simple point. To be free from one thing always entails being bound to something else. For example, when our nation was founded, we chose to be free from monarchy and hereditary government. In our nation, your daddy does not guarantee your spot in politics. However, in choosing to be free in this way, we bound ourselves to other systems of government. Think about it. How free are we really? Have you ever done your taxes? Have you ever had your car inspected? Every day we submit almost constantly to an almost endless list of rules and regulation imposed on our cars, our homes, our power, our food, our water, our relationships, our marriages, and everything else. So freedom always entails binding ourselves to something else. It always involves the freedom to do certain things not everything. With this deeper understanding of freedom in hand, 
ask yourself this question. What exactly, what exactly was the freedom that God had in mind when he liberated Israel from Egypt? What was the freedom that God had in mind when he liberated Israel from Egypt? It wasn't, you see, a freedom to live life however they wanted. That, in fact, would have just plunged them back into a new kind of slavery, slavery to their own desires or the trends and fashions of their day. Rather, God was liberating them from bondage to Pharaoh so that they may become slaves to him. You can see this so clearly, can't you, in the opening words of the Ten Commandments. God begins the Ten Commandments by saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. God liberated them from Pharaoh so that they could serve God and be his people. Their freedom was freedom from sin and a sinful tyrant. It was, not, it was not libertarian freedom, the ability to do whatever they wanted or whatever felt good. In the Ten Commandments then, as we're looking at them tonight, in the Ten Commandments, God is giving laws and regulations that are intended to protect this kind of freedom. Not freedom to do whatever masters me in the moment, but rather freedom to live as a child of God. This is Jesus' own teaching when he says in Matthew 11, verses 28 and following, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's that Exodus language. But then he says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm beginning the sermon this way because I believe that the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, the 10th commandment is all about freedom as God defines it. And that lust or covetousness is all about slavery. Where the last five commands have focused on actions that you do to your neighbor, like murder or adultery, this commandment concentrates on the bondage of our hearts. In short, I think this commandment is calling us to live lives of contentment. So we'll look tonight first at the blinding and binding power of lust, and then at the healing and freeing power of contentment. So first of all, look with me and think with me about the blinding and the binding. The blinding and the binding. Lust, discontent, blinds you to what you already have and binds you to seek something else. That is the heart of the commandment here. God says that we are not to covet what others have. We're not to be enslaved by lust. Our lives are not to be dominated by feelings of want, but rather we are to be thankful. There are so many great illustrations of this in the Bible, but none to me are so simple and so helpful as the story of Ahab and Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21. You probably know the story. Ahab is king. He's living in northern Israel. He's the king of northern Israel. 
We know from history and the Bible that he was extremely rich and successful as a king. He was living, as we might say today, high on the hog. He was incredibly wealthy. But in order to upgrade, he felt that he needed the vineyard next door to his palace or one of his palaces, and it belonged to a man named Naboth. Do you remember his reaction when Naboth refused to sell to him? Here's what the scriptures say. So Ahab went into his house, his palace, sullen and displeased, and he lay down on his bed and, listen, he turned away his face and would eat no food. Now, it's easy to laugh at Ahab in this picture, such childish behavior. It's easy to sneer at Ahab because he had so much. How could he be angry over something so small? And yet this is exactly what we do, isn't it? Whether it is a small thing like the latest gadget or it is a big thing like being single when we wish we were married or wanting kids or wanting a new job or a new home or more freedom, we've all done this. You see, lust or discontent blinds us to what we have. We don't even want to look anymore at what we have. Ahab turned his face from a life filled with good things over the one thing he couldn't have. This is the blinding power of lust, and God wants us to be free from it. Lust is slavery. Maybe you are in this very place tonight. You're so focused on the shortcomings of your parents or your spouse or your life, and you've locked in to those shortcomings, and you can see nothing else. If so, then you can appreciate Ahab's posture with his face to the wall. And you and I have done this many times. I have often given in the past this analogy both to myself as a rebuke and in a loving rebuke sometimes to some of you. Discontent is like a man who goes up to a famous painting, one of the great wonders of the world, and sees only the cracks in the paint. Lust and discontent is the man that sees the Mona Lisa and thinks, you know, it would be better if her eyes were blue or the frame was just a little nicer. Lust's first job is to poke your eyes out so that you'll be easily enslaved. But it gets worse. Ahab, with the help of Jezebel, is further enslaved. Blind to all God's blessings, he is now ready to act out with outrageous sin. He plots the murder of Naboth by hiring two false witnesses. He wants what he wants so badly that now he is willing to do unbelievably immoral acts to get it. And that is where lust leads. Covetousness and discontent in the heart lead to acts of enormous immorality. If you think for a moment of the worst things you have done in your life, at roots, you will find this same dynamic. First, the thing you wanted blinded you to all that you had. And then, while you were groping around looking for your eyes, it was easy to get the shackles on you. This is what consumerism is all about. Consumerism, as you know, is an attitude, a way of life that constantly asks, what's in it for me right now? Our society is inundated with it, and advertisers work hard to create the blindness and bondage of lust. 
But to be honest, they don't have to work very hard, do they? Because we lean that way from birth. So our society is full of divorce, overspending, waste, and fraud as blind people feel for the next rung on the ladder. This wasn't just evil Ahab's experience. It was also, remember, righteous David's experience with Bathsheba. Nathan, you'll remember the prophet, confronted David as a man who already had a whole flock of sheep, but stole a man's one poor little lamb. Just as David already had access to many women and had numerous wives, and yet stole Bathsheba from a loyal soldier. We as Christians often are shocked to find that we are capable of this just as our neighbors are. We too are easily led into slavery. The law of liberty is here to guide us into the freedom of the sons of God. And this leads us to the second point. As lust blinds us and binds us, think with me for a moment of the liberating power in Scripture of contentment, the liberating power of contentment. You can see this in many places, but one of the best is Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Paul in that context is under house arrest. To our knowledge, Paul had no spouse or family that he could turn to. Meanwhile, from the letter, we know that there were false teachers and people within the infant New Testament church who envied him and disliked him. So he had a lot that we would say is worthy of complaint. But he had just received a financial gift of some size from the church in Philippi. He really appreciates the gift, and and more importantly, he says in the letter, he appreciates the thought behind the gift. But then suddenly, in chapter 4 of Philippians, he puts it into perspective, not to belittle the gift, but he wants to make sure they understand where he's coming from. He wants them to know that their gift, greatly appreciated, but that it did not make him content, nor did it make him discontent. Why? Paul is quite clear that he has learned to be content in whatever state God has placed him. Listen to these words from Philippians 4. Paul writes that a church that he loves so much, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, And I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my troubles. Now this is striking for a number of reasons. First of all, Paul is not, you know this hopefully, Paul is not a low-key, laissez-faire kind of fellow. He's a go-getter. He's someone who probably excelled at everything he tried. Bottom line, contentment was something he had to learn. Contentment is not a personality trait. It's not a personality trait that some have and some don't. Sometimes the most seemingly content people 
are in actuality, when you get to know them, just lazy. They lust just as hard, but their lusts are just more easily met. There are calm people who work hard and strive, and there are calm people who are lazy and self-indulgent. As Christians, we need to be careful not to anoint the lazy with the halo of contentment. Paul was ambitious. Paul was goal-oriented, so he had to learn contentment. You can almost imagine him chafing at the bit to get free again and to start traveling again and start evangelizing. He wasn't naturally calm. He wasn't naturally content. He learned contentment, which is not laziness or indifference. Secondly, notice that contentment did not mean or promote laziness or idleness in his life. Paul was resting in contentment, but he was writing churches, evangelizing Roman soldiers, and doing everything he could to rightly further the gospel of Christ. We should do our best in everything. We should desire to excel in all that we do, doing it to the glory of God, but we can never set our hearts on success. Quality is something we work hard to achieve because it honors God and brings joy to humans who are made in His image. Hard work is corrupted when the only goal becomes our lusts. And so notice that this doesn't come from someone who's just checked out or is disinterested in life, but rather someone who has learned in all sorts of situations. When the church is thriving and when he's in a timeout, he's learned in all these different ways and all these different places to be content. It's under every and all circumstances. Who can forget, if you've read it, you can't, who can forget that woman in the screw tape letters who is utterly controlled by lust, but in such a creative way? Do you remember her? Screw tape explains. You see, he says, as he writes his fellow demon, because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her, she never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. The woman is in what we may be called the all-I-want state of mind. All she wants is a cup of tea, properly made, or an egg, properly boiled. Her properly, her properly conceals an insatiable demand for the exact and almost impossible palatal pleasure which she imagines. Many of us do the same with our spouse, our homes, and our cars. We say to ourselves, I don't want perfection. I just want a proper house. I just want a wife who does this. We are like the little old lady, completely enslaved to gluttony and totally unaware. In fact, like her, we think we are quite reasonable people, modest people, really. In Paul, in contradiction to all this, you have that wonderful statement in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This, I hope, has been a very practical sermon, so I want to conclude with two biblical helps as we fight each day with lust and its blinding and binding power. And there are many things I could suggest, but things that have helped me, things that I think are biblical for us to consider as we think about the 10th commandment together. The first is this. 
let me urge you, and it's something I need to do too, step back and take a real look. Look not just at the portrait up close in the cracks. Uh, this was uh, the gift of some other people in our lives, but look closely at the whole of your life. Years ago, there was a man in our church, and um, some of you know him. His name was Tim Moran. And this was uh, Tim's spiritual gift. Every day, Tim was surprised like a child on Christmas. He never got used to being so rich. He knew that his whole life was blessed and that none of it was deserved. In fact, he seemed to know all too well that the opposite was the case, that he had not received what he deserved, and he seemed to be in awe of it every single time you spoke to him. And so every talk was filled with moments of sheer pleasure when he fell into childlike wonder at all that he had. Even when some of you will remember his body and his business were failing, one of those, just one of those being enough to level most men, I remember how he remained happy because lust could not find a way to poke his eyes out. He could see the big picture. He could step back and look. Do not turn your face to the wall like evil Ahab and hate life because it has not turned out as you would have liked. Work for godly change, sure. Seek good and pursue it, yes. But leave the results with God and never lose sight of what you have. Israel's freedom depended on their vision, as does ours. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. So first, take a real and true look at your life and the blessings that have been given to you. Second, know who you are in Jesus and what you have in him. Most of us end up trapped in lust because we lose sight of Jesus and who we are in him. For example, the single person defines himself or herself as single. Their identity becomes their singleness, and so life is about ending that singleness or finding people who understand that singleness. Singleness, which is their circumstance, becomes their identity, what their life is about. In stark contrast, they should see themselves as already married. They are more married than unmarried in Jesus. In fact, because of their union with Christ, the single Christian is much more married than the average unbelieving couple. The same is true for wealth. We are very quick to define ourselves according to our wealth or economic value. But if you know who you are in Jesus, if that is your identity, then you can't be offered anything by the world that you actually must have. You are already rich. You are already loved. You are already free of loneliness in Him. And then truly knowing that, you are free to wisely pursue wealth or relationships appropriately because you don't have to have them anymore, because you already have what you need. Because of all those things, you'll pursue these good things in good ways. Whatever the particular struggle, the key is to remember who you are in Christ. In Christ, Ephesians reminds us, we have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing and seated with Him in heaven. We already have all things. In fact, before time began, before history began, when God the Father placed you into His Son, 
you already at that moment received everything. As the scriptures say, having given us his one and only son, will he not with him give us all things? So what's the problem then? Why are we struggling so hard with discontent about our kids, our jobs, our lives, our marriages? This might surprise you, but the issue is actually an issue of time. We want to see the full manifestation of that blessing right now. We want to possess the world now. God says that we will later. We want to have perfect, loving relationships with others. God has promised a day when heaven and earth will become one, and that will occur. We want to be well. We want to just feel better physically. Jesus has promised us a resurrection body, impervious to death and disease. The things you desire, if they're good, are going to be yours. The power of lust is in impatience. I think we are a lot like the disciples that night in Gethsemane. Do you recall the scene? Jesus is about to go to the cross. It's late, and he asks them to wait just an hour or so with him. He says, watch and pray and and be with me. I'm in agony. But they sleep. I hear, through God's word, that same voice saying, what? What can't you wait just a while with me in order to obtain eternal glory? Brethren, it is the Lord's will to give you the kingdom, but you must endure Take hope then, let lust die in the thought of what you will be, what you will have for all eternity. In fact, the things that are coming are so great, the Bible tells us, the blessings that will be yours are so rich, so beautiful, that you can't even imagine what is already yours. Make no mistake, every legitimate desire in you will be first amplified so that it might receive glory and then eternally satisfied by endless glory. That is to say, God's first move will be to massively increase your capacity for joy and pleasure. Your desires are far too small. God's glory demands a larger cup. And then he will fill it, a cup that is running over eternally. Already your cup runneth over. If only you have eyes of faith to see it. Amen. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, our cup runs over and has not yet occurred to your people in this life the things that you have prepared for them. And for this reason, they are impatient to have it all now and unhappy when it is not all theirs. And when we fall into that, Father, where our eyes are taken away from us and we are bound to our lusts, Free us tonight that we might keep the 10th commandment in joy out of the deep satisfaction we have in Christ. Grant it to each one here, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.